the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you on this fine Wednesday morning from the Far East, that is the Far East of Germany and Berlin. My name is Daniel Freeber, I'm the host of today's episode of the Cycling Podcast as we take a closer look at the first newly unwrapped present under professional cycling's off-season Christmas tree. That is the route of the 2023 Giro d'Italia, a mere 199 days until the 2023 Giro. What a daunting prospect. Uh, Joining me today from the Costa Blanca, it is a veteran of five Giri d'Italia as a rider. We think, we think 15 as a direct sportif. Very important for the purposes of today's podcast. He's a Tour de Suisse stage winner, a Tour Down Under stage winner. He made history at the 2004 Tour de France by breaking a collarbone on the first climb of the race. That climb being a slightly raised television cable, which he toppled over on the way to the start line. Over the last decade, he has masterminded Grand Tour and Classics victories from the front seat of a team car, while also racking up more unpaid appearances on the cycling podcast than Remco Avenepoel has had DMs from RCS Sport-affiliated social media accounts in the last month. It is the Bike Exchange. Jayco Head Sports Director, Matt White. Matt, how are you? Good. Yeah, very good. Very good. Enjoying the first week of the off-season. Matt, I mentioned those appearances on our podcast, but I've also been listening to you on a couple of other podcasts. Um... I know you like to play the field. You know, some slightly more controversial podcast than ours, you know. But yeah, that's fine. If uh, if that's what you need to, uh, that's what you need to make you feel edgy, then that's fine. Mate, mate, I'm open doors, open doors. You're being a big flirt. Don't knock it till you try it. Don't knock it till you try it. It's a broad church, mate. You're right. You're welcome here. Also joining me today from Soya in Mallorca, it is the long-serving Eurosport cycling commentator, multilingual voice of cycling, and erstwhile Accrington Cricket Club pie thrower, a man whose accents can take you around the world in 10 seconds of broadcasting, but whose palate has only just discovered avocados and is still unsure whether hummus is too exotic for him. He is my former flatmate and whipping boy in the annual Sacalobra mountain time trial. It is Rob Hatch. Good morning. <laughs> you did actually beat you did beat me once in the Sacalabra time trial. I was going to say, never mind. Yeah, never that mind. was many, 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 many. many a few ago. kilos ago, that a few, a few kilos ago. Chaps, a um, little bit of a roundup now on what's been happening in the world of professional cycling. Feel free to interject. I will be, will be asking you for your views, um, observations on a few of these issues. Anyway, and um, feel free to pass as well. Um, a few, few thorny issues in there. Uh, the racing season officially definitively closed for many World Tour and Pro Conti teams this week when the f- um, with a couple of races in the Far East. You'll remember hearing that some of the leading teams had added the Tour of Lankawi to their calendar in the scramble for UCI points to stave off relegation. That decision was justified for Movistar with Ivan Sosa uh, winning overall in Lankawi, although the Spanish team had by then already Im- amassed enough points to secure their top division status for next year. Similar story at the Japan Cup, where EF Education first, Easy Post finished first and second, well, with Nelson Paulus and Andrea Piccoli. That team too had been threatened by relegation earlier in the year. Those results mean that Israel Premier Tech and Lotto Sudal now face the chop and will lose their World Tour status in 2023. A reminder, though, that Lotto do at least qualify for the major tours on the basis of their 2022 ranking as the Total Energy. Israel, on the other hand, will only receive automatic invitations to the one-day one world tour races. 
Well, I see, uh, I mentioned it's, well, that scramble for points. Um, it is over. You guys, as were, you know, almost half the world tour, were sort of dragged into that battle at one point. Um, bit of a relief that it's all over? Uh, definitely. Definitely a relief. So the status for, for the 18 teams who qualified, now they have to go through the process of ticking two other boxes. Uh, with the UCI, which is uh, one behind the closed doors, um, is that we have uh, we have our license once we tick those two boxes for the next three years. So it is a big relief. So teams like Lotus Sedal, Israel, and teams who want to come up over the next three years can do so, but if they are the best-ranked team outside of that 18. So they're, they're fighting every year for three years. But um, for us, yeah, it was looking looking back at now this is a, this was a three-year process that was run – you know, three years ago, I think where the, where the World Tour was is, you know, we were losing a team every second year uh, and really scrambling uh, as, a, as, a, as, as a team, as a you know, organisation to keep World Tour sponsors in the sport. And for, for this year, having 20 teams putting their hand up to join the World Tour is, for me, is a really positive thing. And I just see how it played out over the last couple of years. No, no team in 2019 was looking at, three years of points and how they best allocate three years of points. Uh, to be honest, we didn't look at it until the end of last year um, because, you know, that three years was run through a pandemic. The calendar was totally different to what it was planned uh, on lots of different fronts. And we did enough this year to make sure – I think I think I added 40-plus race days wow. this year to the calendar. We, we're traditionally a team that does not do excessive race days because of our the way – Way our sponsors have let us race, and two, the fact that because we are uh, our primary sponsor is an Australian, we haven't got the same ties to races in France or Belgium or Italy or Spain. So those teams who have sponsors located in those regions obviously are committed to do every race in those regions. So I did add a lot of race days just to make sure, and then also like like all teams, um, we had our fair share of bad luck. Uh, Yeah, yeah, our number one rider Simon Yates out of. Out of those three years, only finished one Grand Tour. You know, in, at the 2020 Giro and the 2022 World Tour, it was taken out by COVID. So two times in the last three years. And last year, he finished third in the... Um, and we lost the Giro this year with injury. And last year, he finished third in the Giro. So we've had our fair share of uh, ups and downs, but we always knew that we are good enough to um, to arrive inside the 18, even though I'm, I'm not a big fan of the way the points uh, are allocated. Yeah, I think we spoke yesterday, didn't we, Matt, about the Japan Cup, which I mentioned there. Nielsen Palace won that. I mean, um, you said as, as many points as a, as a Grand Tour stage win. Is that right or more? Uh, it was worth the same as two stage wins in the Giro or two stage wins in the Vuelta. You know? and, and that was a race, for an example. Uh, that's a race that we had been to for the last seven or eight years, but were declined entry into this year. Because uh, due to the fact that the Japan Cup hasn't got a relationship with our major sponsor, Giant. So it's a point score system. Or, or, for example, Israel couldn't go to Malaysia due to religious grounds. They were, they were rejected. So it's a point score system. We're trying to compete against each other, but we actually can't even enter the same events. So I think, I it's think like a, it a needs- Premier League football season in which the teams don't play the same number of games and they're playing against different teams. Yeah, or some, or you go duck off a team in the La Liga can duck off and get some points in Luxembourg for the weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think um, looking at it from the outside, gents, 
Um, I think the idea of promotion and relegation is something that, that's positive for the sport just because it gives those newer teams an opportunity like, you know, you've just been talking about football to get a chance to compete against the best, to work their way up on merit and what have you. And those who aren't performing, I know it's not nice, is it, for those who are involved and the worries about jobs and things like that, but, you know, the ones who aren't performing get relegated. However, like you say, <laughs> the point system does seem to be crazy. And one other thing I'd add into it as well is that it's impossible for fans to understand it. Fans don't know how many points are available for this win, that win, what have you. It could fans be simplified. And and, and well, commentators as well, yeah. I mean, mm. it's... And some teams, by the looks of it. Well, it's interesting, <laughs> actually. You said that, you know, you weren't really looking at it until the end of last year. Where we were no. sitting as well, we, you know, we, we look at every race we talk about. I know it might not seem it sometimes, but, um, <laughs> you know, we sit down and have a look what, what the panorama is. And it's not something we were looking at until sort of getting to on this spring either, or even bringing into our narrative. So... I think the whole maybe three-year plan thing needs looking at again. And I like everything. It's not perfect, but I would say that from where I'm sitting, the most important thing is that the points have to be a lot easier for everybody to understand. Otherwise, if we've got a story, how can you not follow it or tell it? It's, it's a bit of a strange thing. No, definitely. No, I'm the same. I think a relegation system, that's only a positive if we've got teams who have the capacity to move up, but there has to be a fair, a fair system where we can compete on the same level for those points as well. Chat some more racing news from Italy. We had the Giro del Veneto last Thursday, I think it was, in the Colleen Berici above Vicenza. Rob Hatch commentated. I think he can tell us who won that. Can I remember who won that? Every race blends into another at this stage of the season. Uh, I'm going to cheat and look right back through the it results. Was Matteo Trentin. Uh, uh, thank you. Matteo at least you were watching. Um, this was, I think you, you commented on this as well, so uh, you should at least remember, this was only a couple of days ago, you should, should remember this one. This was followed by the Serenissima gravel race, also in the Veneto, won by Swiss rider, Rob. I didn't commentate on that one, no. Oh, okay. that, that's one of the new races that doesn't get coverage. We did the World Championships, which is an experience in itself, um, trying to follow that. But the, the Serenissima gravel, unfortunately, didn't have any tele coverage, no. That was won by Robin Froidevaux. A name that I'm not very familiar with. He Swiss champion on the road. Team. Is he Swiss champion on the road? He is, yep. yep. Um, after that came the Veneto Classic on Sunday where the winner was Mark Hirschi. In 30th place in that race was Davide Rebellin. And yes, it was Rebellin's last ever race as a professional cyclist, barring any kind of rethink. He'd finished fifth in the same race in 1992, beating the likes of Laurent Fignon. He's 51 years old. He's older than Jens Vogt, Lance Armstrong. And yes, three years older than Matt White. Matt, how would you feel sitting here today contemplating the last three years of your professional career as a rider? Because you're 48, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I am 48 and I cannot fathom it. Uh, I did race more. Well, my whole career was the same period as a part of David Rebelin's uh, career. And I do remember him uh, very well from the 90s and the 2000s. And for him to still be going... At a, at a pretty competitive level, uh, I don't. It's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. But um, yeah, if he if he sticks to these guns, that'll be the last time we see him with a number on in a UCI race. You never know. He might move on to Grand Fondos. I'm pretty sure he's not going to be able to put away the bike that easily. So I dare say he'll still be racing, but maybe not uh, with the same team or in, on the same type of racing. Another retirement of the weekend at a much more reasonable age. Former hour record holder Alex Dowsett, he concluded his career at the Chrono uh, des Nations, which was won by Stefan Kung. Track cycling, not my speciality. 
It was the World Championships last week. Um, I saw and understood enough to know that Filippo Ganna broke the Men's World Individual Pursuit record, take gold in that event. Speaking of riders who will also be familiar from the road, Ethan Hayter won the Men's Omnium. Uh, Benjamin Thomas and Donovan uh, Grandin won the Men's Madison. Elia Viviani won the Elimination and the Great British Quartet. Bigham, Hayter, Vernon and Wood won the Team Pursuit. In the women's team pursuit, an Italian force made up of Balsamo, Consoni, Fidanza and Guazzini won gold. Fidanza also won the scratch race. Uh, Francisca Brauser won the individual pursuit. Lotto Capecchi won the elimination. And also the Madison with Sari Bossut, I think is um, how you pronounce her name. Nia Evans won the women's points race. And Jennifer Valente won the Omnium. In Belgium, Remco Evenepoel became the youngest ever winner of the Flandrian, Flandrian of the Year Award. Rob, is that is that just the best Belgian rider, isn't it? It's not the best rider outright. Yes. Um, he also won the Cristal of Feats as well, which, which is, the, is the sort of... But the, it's another cycling awards for the... The, the, the Emmys. Yes. <laughs> it's the rival <laughs> awards. It's the rival <laughs> awards. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that that's, to be honest, I would, I'd put that on a slightly higher... In terms of media attention, that, that's the one they all want to win, the Cristal and Feats. That was about a week before, I think. Next, some transfer news. That is confirmed news and also a bit of gossip as well. Transfers, we mentioned last week that Ineos Grenadiers had a big announcement coming. Well, it duly dropped on Wednesday and as predicted, it was the signing of that organisation's first ever female rider, the multidisciplinary world champion, including gravel, incidentally, um, Pauline ferrand Prévost, Not Primoz Roglic, as we speculated about a couple of weeks ago. Talking of announcements, we expect the team formerly known as B&B Hotels to unveil Mark Cavendish as their new talisman at a press conference before the Tour de France route presentation later or next week. We think the team will also announce the signing of Max Ricese as Cavendish's lead-out man and of BMC as their new bike supplier. Um, none of that is yet confirmed, I should stress. Talking of sprinters, the record-breaking 40-time Giro d'Italia stage winner Mario Cipollini has been given a three-year prison sentence for violent and threatening behaviour towards his ex-wife Sabrina Landucci. Charges were brought after an altercation at the fitness studio where Landucci worked in 2017. Cipollini's lawyers have announced they will appeal the decision. And finally, something much less Grave, much less serious, um, but worth mentioning. Another rumour at this stage regards equipment changes. It's been reported, rumoured at this stage, that Jumbo Visma will be swapping Shimano group sets for SRAM in 2023. And UAE will go from Campagnolo to Shimano. Um, now, Matt, I'm not going to ask you to wade into the culture war of Campagnolo versus Shimano versus SRAM, but... And this is something you'll be familiar with, the issue of, of equipment changes. I mean, you guys, from what I gathered, not only from you, but a, a number of your riders last year, you had a, a positive equipment change, something you were very happy with, and that was the frame supplier. Um, you started using um, giant bikes last year. But, you know, we've also seen examples in the last few years. For, um, there was the Movistar, well, the Movistar documentary told, El Dia Menos Pensado told us... Um, about how difficult that team had found. That was a move from Campagnolo to Sram. Campe, Campe to yeah, trim, particularly yeah. the complications that that brought for the mechanics and it led to incidents in races. Again, not because of the inherent quality of the components, but simply because the mechanics weren't used to working with certain equipment. So just talk to us a little bit about, about how much of a risk it is to change well something as fundamental as a group set. 
Uh, well, I've, our organization's been lucky enough to stay with Shimano for 11 years, but um, the, those rumors that you mentioned there, that's, that's a big one, especially with, uh, with Jumbo. Um, because you know we have we have seen Tram go up and down in waves. At one stage, there probably six or seven years ago, I reckon they probably had nearly half the world tour, pretty close to like maybe seven or eight teams. Mm. And then I don't actually know who's riding Tram at the moment, but there's not too many teams. So to have a team of that quality, and obviously with the Tour de France winner riding Tram next year, once it is confirmed, that's a big move um, for Tram. And also, Jumbo have been a very big promoter and uh, you know, leading the way for Shimano for a long, long time. Since, Shimano, since as far as it's a, it's a Japanese company, but they're very, they've always kind of been based, the European kind of nerve center has been in the Netherlands, hasn't it? Correct, yeah. correct. So uh, that's a big one. That, that is a really big one. But as far as risks, yeah, I think, look, I think all the componentry, SRAM, Campag and Shimano, it's all good quality. Is that, that, that's for sure. The bits and bobs that go with it, with the, you know, now, you know, when you're with those companies, that that is not just components. That also usually brings wheels, sometimes tires, seats, handlebars, you name it. So it, it can be a big change, and I think that's where sometimes that that is also difficult for for the riders sometimes as well. You know, if, if you're changing everything in the one season, there, there's there's not naturally some hiccups and some some uh, teething pains in the early months of that of that change. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Some big news from Super Sapiens this week because if you use a Wahoo bike computer, specifically the Bolt V2 or the Rome V2, you can use Bluetooth to stream real-time glucose levels direct from your Abbott Libra glucose sport biosensor to your handlebars. And that's a real game changer because it means you don't need to use your phone when you're cycling and it means that you can monitor glucose levels while riding. And some of Super Sapiens ambassadors have already talked about how much of a game changer this is lauren de crescenzo said the live readings on my bolt 2 allow me to keep my glucose stable and avoid major drops which would usually result in a loss of power on the bike these live glucose readings played a significant role in defending my title at sbt gravel and rachel nayland said often we don't realize how much fuel it takes to maintain optimal glucose levels and how it can rise and fall during sessions depending on the type of nutrition used it's a brilliant new tool and another way to expand my high performance kit well if you want to find out more about super sapiens and its compatibility with wahoo or just check out how it all works go to supersapiens.com Well, a sound 
synonymous for many of our listeners with the Giro d'Italia. That was our Giro d'Italia theme music um, provided by Amara Terra, Cozze. You'll be hearing that again in May. Also, also taking me to Italy on this fairly dingy um, October morning is Rob Hatch's attire today. He's, wonderful. He's wearing a wonderful throwback Roberto Baggio um, Italian national jersey. Let's hope I don't miss the penalty, eh? This, this reminds me of an interview I did with Chris Froome on the Giro a couple of years ago, three or four years ago. We were surrounded by signed shirts of the legends of, of Italian football, including Roberto Baggio. And I tried to quiz him. Or oh, This was my opening gambit, something about Roberto Baggio. He'd never heard of Roberto Baggio, Chris Froome. <laughs> shameful, shameful. And we are Shocking. now going to talk about the Giro d'Italia 2023. Um, talking about things that immediately remind me of the Giro d'Italia, make me think of the Giro d'Italia. Matt, I mentioned that you've done, well, you did five as a rider, 15 as a DS. And now there's some point every year, usually in the spring where I see you at a race and I sort of ask you what you've got coming up next. And there's always one point in the spring when you're heading over to Italy to do some kind of recon road trip. And these road trips, in my mind, have assumed this kind of mythical or as sort of national lampoons vacation kind of, and that's the image I have of them in my head or something, you know, Jack Kerouac. Um, I don't know what you get up to over there, but tell us, in fact, tell us what, what particularly in this age of, of so much information, we talk a lot about VeloViewer and, and all the resources available nowadays, why do you still need to go and get boots on the ground and, and, and look at the route well ahead of time? Well, where the process starts for, it has in the last 15 years for me, is when I first started as a director, there was no Vela viewer. So, you know, there was maps. And maps don't give you that good a picture of, of what you, what's coming up. So I would always go, well, the vast majority of those fifth, last 15 years I've been at Tirano. So it, I'm already there in Italy. So what I would do is I would go either pre-Tirano, that that gap between Tirano and Milan-San Remo, or even stay on even longer. And that was a really good window where I was in the middle of Italy. Um, but I could either go – I would usually go south, uh, usually go south because, one, they're the stages that are less familiar in general with, with most people, uh, especially Sicily and, and, the, and the deep south. They're, we don't have bike races down there like we used to in the 80s. Or 90s, there used to be lots of regional tours down there that we don't have anymore. And for it, it all depends on what the focus is. So, before when I was looking, when we had a sprinter, for example, and you're going to the Giro with the sprinter, it will be you're looking at a stage, looking at profiles, GPX files, it recently and going, well, that looks that could be a sprint, but it would really give me a better idea of those stages, seeing them, seeing them visually myself. And I, would, I could leave those stages going, well, actually. That stage is too hard for our sprinter, we're, so we are not going to commit on this day to bring it back. Or the other one is, well, actually, this this climb is in a forest. If the wind's doing this, if the brakes are a small one, actually, we haven't we have got enough time to get to bring this brake back. So, merely managing the resources uh, for a sprinter, and then the, the Giro, the sprint stages, we'd always try to do last minute recon because the run-ins and those sort of the the actual. The, the details would be very would be different to what you would see in March or April to actually what it would looked up it would look like barricaded, and then the last five to six years or even longer when I've gone with the GC focus, I'd be looking at other things. Now what I'd be looking at we wouldn't look we would not look at for sprint stages at all. We would be looking probably more at the intermediate stages in the Giro, 
Because uh, And why? Because they're not the stages where you win the Giro or lose the Giro, but you can certainly save a lot of energy. So, you know, the, the Queen stages, the stages usually in the Dolomites, uh, you know, we, find, we found out the Giro route this week. No, I don't envisage any one of the GC caliber of the Giro going into the mountains next week to have a look at them because within a couple of weeks I'll be closed with snow. And a lot of yeah, a lot of those ones, we'll leave those to the very end, like as close to the start of the Giro as possible if we even recon them. Um, but those those stages in the south especially, all those intermediate stages where you've got three, three to three and a half thousand metres of climbing, they're the stages that I would really take a real keen look at and 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 – it would really help me when I was designing a plan two months later of, of how we approached those stages. So oh, I really enjoyed it. I, I've got a, I have, I really do love Italy and uh, we would, we would also divvy those up that, that you know, now I've got six or seven sports directors and you know, back in uh, 2008, we had three. So we, we also divvy those up as well within this, within the sports director group. So I would do, I would do a group in the South where another director would do something in maybe the Northeast uh, and we, we so you know, the last couple of years we would basically cover every stage that wasn't a sprint stage before we got to the Giro. So we would have a very good picture of what what our uh, race looked like well in advance. I mean, and even that, Matt, I think I'm right in saying it doesn't ensure you completely against the odd unpleasant surprise. I remember a stage a couple of years ago in Agrigento, I think it was early in the Giro, where I think I spoke to you after the finish, and you were horrified to find out that the the last two kilometers were nothing like what I, I don't need, I think they were different from what the roadbook said they were certainly different from what you expected them to be no that, that has happened uh, a couple of times um, where <laughs> you would spend six hours in a car seven hours in a car driving a route there and you get to the final you make all your notes pop it in here and pop it in there and then you get back and they've adjusted the course to take a different pass or everything's the same until five kilometers to go and instead of a straightforward run into the final you have this technical running that you've never seen before things like that the other one is road quality um, knowing how Italians do things, uh, and also the locals get excited when the Giro comes because they know they know they're getting new roads. But when those roads are laid, uh, <laughs> um, one year I did one year I checked out a major time trial in the race in March, and I was make, I was out in the course, and the roads were terrible, absolutely terrible. There's a section, and it was one part of it was on a descent, and it was quite concerning the, the surface of this road and. Uh, we went through the went through March April. It was it was a time trial after a rest day, and I was like I was like an hour and a bit, maybe hour and a half drive away from this course. And I thought, oh, after lunch, I've got nothing else to do. I'll go out and rip around the course again. And so in the car I went, got there. It was maybe three o'clock in the afternoon. Came around the corner, and there were these mass all these trucks laying new road at three p.m. the day before the the TT. So all the notes that I'd made about this time trial, how, how it was technical here, bad road surface here, stay on the left, stay on the right. The next day, it was brand new road surface, still drying. So there's, there's a lot to see, but you know, I'm used to it. But it, it certainly, it was an annual trip I would do in March. If, and if I had to make another, another nip back just before the Giro started in April, I would do so. But it, for me, it was, it was very important. And it, I've done it with a few different people. It's easy to do with, with, with someone else because, you know, someone driving, someone, you can do the stages a lot quicker if you haven't got to stop all the time and make notes or even if it is audio notes or it's easy to do with someone else. And I do love Italian food and, uh, food and beverages. So uh, it, it, was, <laughs> it was never a dull trip. 
Well, chaps, I said it was the official presentation just a couple of days ago. We'll have our own presentation now, and the master of ceremonies will be Robert Hatch. Rob, um, take us through, take us up to stage 10. Um, tell us what we've got Pressure's coming. on here. Use full name. It's like my mum talking to me. Here we go. <laughs> <coughs> right then. So another Giro d'Italia, 106th. Giro d'Italia 2023 edition and Abruzzo where it starts to Rome where it finishes doesn't sound like too much of a trek does it but it's Italy and we're taking the scenic route as always starting with a time trial along an old bike path on the Adriatic coast it sort of reminds you a little bit of San Remo good memories there for Whitey a few years ago on the team time trial this is a bit longer though this is 18 kilometres long individual time trial and an uphill finish to Ortona means that the GC riders won't really be able to ease their way in too much before the sprinters get their first chance when the race heads south the day after. The Giro will then pass through Melfi before going into Basilicata, Lago Lasceno, scene of wins for Alex Zula and more recently Domenico Pozzo Vivo in 2012. So 11 years later we're going back there. The way the race then goes west to Campania and returns to Salerno. The following day stage 6 promises to be the most spectacular of tourist adverts. Napoli, yet again, a year after we went back last year for the first time in over a decade. This time, though, it's not the city circuit. The Neapolitan press already calling it La Tappa Più Bella al Mondo, the most beautiful stage in the world. Not like them to egg it up or sort of sing their own praises a little bit, but we'll be taking in Vesuvius, Pompeii, the Amalfi and Sorrento coasts, going through Amalfi itself, Positano. On the telly, it's going to look absolutely brilliant. The journey north then takes the riders into the Apennines. The first serious mountain test comes at Gran Sasso d'Italia, a mountain of Pantani and more recently Simon Yates fame. There was a little issue in the chairlifts as well, Daniel, if I remember last time as well. Our good mate Sean Kelly had a little bit of a coming together, let's say, with Mr. Venya at the end of that. That was uh, an interesting yeah. afternoon trying to get down from you, there. I'm glad you spent... I'm glad you specified what that was because the way you introduced it it sounded much more scurrilous <laughs> than, than it actually was it was chaotic I remember sort of Simon Yates being escorted through with chaperones and everything anyway after that we go to the final stage of the opening block that's a flat 33 kilometer time trial for purists, we think. It is pan flat and it finishes in Cesena. After a Romagnolo rest day, the Giro then returns to Tuscany with a stage finish by the Tyrrhenian Sea in Viareggio. And that takes us, as we said, to stage 10, uh, Rob, just beyond the first rest day. Just a couple of a couple of bits of historical or geographical trivia. Um, you mentioned the stage to Lago Lacino. I noticed that after 60 kilometres that day, they go through a place called San Fele, um, which is where Fabian Cancellara's dad was born. Um, stage six, the Napoli stage, they go over the Valico di Chunzi, where Marco Pantani came a cropper, much like Matt White in the 2004 Tour de France, but he f- crashed over or crashed into, I think it was a black cat. Um, or I'm not sure if whether the, the Giro mythology has embroidered some of the details there. Black cats being unlucky in Italy, but lucky in, well, in our part of the world, aren't they, Rob? If you cross a, a black cat crosses your path that's considered good luck isn't it it's it's the opposite in Italy I think it's good luck but there's a lot of that isn't there like um, in Italy they they sort of invert all of our superstitions Spain um, as well we have have Martes Trece instead of Viernes Trece so Tuesday the 13th there you go there you go Um, Matt just 
First impressions of those first 10 days in particular? Not a lot for the pure sprinters. Uh, Looking at at that first 10 days, stage two is the only guaranteed sprint for me. Uh, Three, five, and and six could turn into sprints. Um, Three, obviously there's a climb late in the stage that could, uh, could dislodge the pure sprinters, and then five and six, it'll all depends on the size of the break, the composition of the break, uh, if they, they can be reeled back in. But that's not a lot for sprinters in the first week, first 10 days of the Giro d'Italia. It's funny, actually, because... Gunner. Sorry, just quickly, the organisers in their official press release said that there were eight sprint stages, and I was like, you're looking, I'm like, where are these eight stages? It's going to be interesting to see if they, if they occur and how they top them up. Yeah, I... The eight stages. I was thinking, um, a, a, if everything went right, there would there could possibly be seven. If ever that was with every that's every, that's everything. If every break was caught, there's seven. I don't know where the eighth one is. I missed something there, but uh, there won't be. <laughs> knowing, knowing doesn't look like it. No, no, no. I mean, Charles, we start with that 18.9 kilometre time trial. Um, obviously, a great opportunity for Filippo for Ganna. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about Remco Evenepoel and Giro needing Remco Evenepoel because it needs a star name because the, the general consensus is it hasn't had that. It hasn't had the same kind of razzmatazz, crash bang wallop as the other Grand Tours over the last few years. And, you know, one thing they always say, Italians always say, is that if you get a, an Italian in the first pink jersey, it, it sort of gives the, well, the home crowds a lift and increases their interest levels throughout the Giro so the genuine I think the genuine hope that Ganna will take the first pink jersey Whitey one thing I've mentioned uh, I've noticed sorry and I wanted to mention to you about this Giro in general and also it also links to entertainment levels now I thought I mean didn't really say at the time but this year's race I know the riders don't care and the teams don't care but from a spectator's point of view it wasn't the greatest Giro this year and one thing uh, one reason I thought for that was that the starts on a lot of stages were, were relatively straightforward and you didn't have situations where Groups were going away, strong riders were going away, so as the French say, à la pédale, i.e. on climbs earlier in the stages. And, and consequently, you know, you did get the, the usual, the kind of stereotypical TV break um, and a fairly innocuous break going away early. The starts in this Giro d'Italia, I think, are, are quite difficult throughout. And I don't know how you think that will affect the race. Oh, well, it, it always makes it more challenging, that's, that's for sure, and much harder to control. I think that that's... That's what I first noticed in those in the first week. Some of those first hour of racing is is quite solid, which does leave a good platform for breaks to launch. But I think looking at the back end of the race, we haven't got onto that yet. But I think uh, there's not too much in that first hour to to put a cat amongst the pigeons there. So I think it will be a bit of the same 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 as far as breakaways. Uh, but I'll be very curious to see who is on the start line. And I think a lot will depend. For some guys, on what we see in uh, in a week's time when the Tour de France is announced, because someone like you said, Filippo Ghana, I think he would love to come and dominate the the Giro. There's two time trials that are right down his alley, but uh, you know, let's see what uh, that's rumor is it that there's the TT's first day in the Tour de France that I've heard uh, in the Basque region, which probably won't suit Ghana as much as he would have liked. So we'll we'll know in the next few weeks and I know all eyes and, and ears for teams are focused now on the, the tour after we've seen the Welter 
and then we'll be putting the pieces of our yearly puzzle together over the next couple of weeks. Well, you're just looking at a couple of those summit finishes as well, you will know them already. Lago Lacino, you should have done, I think, in 1998, which was your first Giro d'Italia. I don't know if you remember it. Alex Zullo won the stage and took the pink jersey, if I'm not mistaken, that day. And uh, as Rob said, Campo Imperatore will hold fond memories for Simon Yates. Now, I, I, I only have flashbacks of the 1998 Giro. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember Simon's stage win on Grand Sasso a couple of years ago. I was at, actually, it was a day before the rest day and we went into that rest day with first and second on general classification with uh, Simon and Esteban and exited it with one. Um, it was, so yeah, a lot was happening through that part of the Giro, but uh, it was obviously uh, a very bittersweet Giro for us, obviously winning five stages, but then losing the jersey 48 hours from the finish. Hmm. And that's the first of several, I think, seven climbs in total that go over 2,000 metres of climbing um, in the Giro. And I suppose if the Giro has had an identity and it's tried to lean into an identity as well as, you know, this tagline of being the hardest race in the most beautiful place over the last few years, it's been longer climbs, higher climbs. And Gran Sasso, it's not the steepest, but it's 45, I think it's 40 or close to 45 kilometres, certainly over 40 kilometres, depending on where you take the bottom of the climb. Um, and that's that's also going to be a feature this year. Um, the those two thousand meter climbs, Whitey. Yeah, for for people at home, um, it is true. The Giro is you know, there is no climbs in the Welter at that at that length that they use or the Tour. So the times you go above two thousand meters, the the meters of climbing is multiplied a hell of a lot at, at the Giro, and it does make the race uh, more. And not, not, it's, it's different. It's just different. Let's put it that way. Um, because, you know, obviously in May, you are susceptible to a lot more varied weather conditions. So all those things do make the, do make the Giro. For me, I, I agree. It is the toughest of the three Grand Tours as far as physically. There's the Tour de France makes parts of it, make it a, a lot more stressful, a lot tougher in other ways. And then the Welter as well. It's, 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 it's raced very different to the other two as well. So... They all have their qualities, they all have their difficulties, but uh, I do agree that the Giro is the toughest terrain-wise, and a big part of that is the amount of metres of climbing that you do. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. So, chaps, we have reached... Well, where have we reached? We've reached... Uh, Camayore. We're past the first rest day. We're, it's the 17th of May, Wednesday, 17th of May. We start in Camayora, a destination well known in well, Tuscan cycling. Rob Hatch, where do we go next? We then go to Tortona next. Uh, and we're going to celebrate, I think, the 70th anniversary of the fifth Giro won by the late great Fausto Coppi and also the centenary of his brother Cerse's birth. At least that's what I saw rumoured before the route was announced and it has been announced that we're going to Tortona, home of the Coppies. After that, the race goes to Rivoli, further north into Piemonte. And then we go through Val d'Aosta and into Switzerland to uh, Con Montana, Crans Montana, 208 kilometers, long, long day, and the Cimacopi, which is going to be the Colle del Gran San Bernardo, the Col du Grand San Bernard. You've seen it in different races in the past. This is 2,400 meters high, so 
we've got to be hoping that the snow has disappeared and cleared off long before then. The day after we come back to it, leave from Sierra, going over another big high mountain pass, the Simplon Pass or the Paso Sempione. Then we've got a sort of Giro di Lombardia day, don't we? We go to Bergamo, 191 kilometers over the climbs like Miragolo San Salvatore, the Selvino, where we've seen issues on descents in the pass in both the Giro and in the Giro di Lombardia. Then into the Città dei Mille, of course, the great city that we've seen the Giro di Lombardia start and finish in the last few years. Then, stage 16 after the second rest day is to Monte Bondone. A big name from the past returns to the Giro d'Italia. But on first look, Daniel, I don't think it's the same side that Ivan Basso showed off his wares no. in 2006. Yeah, never never been up this side. The Giro's never been up this side. Um, it's been at the Bondoni in 1956. Charlie Gore famously won on that day, 1957, 1978. Panizza won 92, Fordland, and then 2006, Ivan Basso. But never from the Aldino side. So that will be interesting. Long, tough climb, isn't it? A very, very long climb and preceded by a couple of other climbs as well towards the beginning. So a big mountain stage, that one back after, a, what is it, a 17-year absence, a 19-year absence, pardon me, for doing my sums right. Um, then we go to Caorle, which is uh, the sort of typical stage at this point in the race, isn't it? On the Venetian plane for the sprinters that isn't always a sprint, as we saw a few years ago, Mr. Chima who's no longer a pro cyclist, will remind us that. I think he's now one of the moto regulators in the Giro d'Italia, or he was at last look. Um, then over to the Val di Zoldo and a big mountain stage. It's the sort of primo for the secondo the day after, isn't it? Because the secondo is the Tapone Dolomitico. 182 kilometers to Tre Cime di Lavaredo. Passo Campolongo, Valparola, Giao, Trecime, hopefully this time no snow. There's certainly no Nibali. We'll see what happens in 2023 before a mountain time trial to finish things off realistically because we've still got one stage to ride, but more about that in a minute. I think this is probably what's going to dominate a lot of the discussion as well, what's coming up after this. But we go right to the border, don't we? Not just the border with Italy and Slovenia, but also with Austria. Three countries meet at the top of this mountain. It's Monte Lussari, 18.6 kilometer time trial uphill. I think, is it the first 11 kilometers of pan flat, something like that? And then we go straight uphill. Ridiculous gradients in the Julian Alps. And it promises to be a big show, 12,000 meters uh, sorry, 12,000, 1,200 metres of climbing. That would be a lot, wouldn't it? 1,200 metres of climbing. The last sort of 10 kilometres, I think, around 8% average. Before the most controversial moment of this Giro d'Italia, a transfer on an aeroplane down to Rome, Roma, where the Giro's not always been received fantastically well. We'll have to see what happens, whether they find a better route with the roads this time. Um, and that is the, what is it? 106th Giro d'Italia. Well, a lot to sink our fangs into there, Matt, isn't there? A lot of really interesting climbs. I mean, starting from that sort of tour of swanky Swiss ski resorts on stage 13, um, we go to Valbier and then Crown Montana. I, I had a message, actually, um, Matt, what you'll remember, Alain Rumpf, who used to work for the UCI, um, he lives at the bottom, pretty much the bottom of the climb to Valbier. Um, he said when the first rumours came out, I was afraid it would be a long procession over the Grand Saint-Bernard. Uh, instead, the race is going over the colder. Quoi de Coeur, an interesting, very Giro-esque choice. Um, 
Really interesting descent. He says barely paved the descent at the moment. Not sure whether they'll improve it or not. And um, yeah, by all accounts, a really a really interesting climb and a bit of a crackerjack day. And then, yeah, as, as Rob said, those couple of days in the Dolomites, the Val di Zoldo, the classic stays to Trecimi di Lavaredo, and then those obscene gradients on the stage on the time chart to Monte Lusari. First impressions again, Matt, of this second half of the race. Not too much more for the sprinters. Uh, <laughs> they're in for a rough one. Does that give us an idea of what you're thinking of next year? Yeah, anyway? Well, they're in for a rough one. Yeah, Dylan Grunwagen will not be going. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. Um, now, look, it is, I think, the two days into Switzerland. That's, that's tough at the back end of the race. Maybe not the GC days, but they are tough days. Again, 15, 16, not easy, especially 16. That's a, that's a brutal a brutal second half of the stage or two-thirds of the stage. 18 and 19, no surprise. Uh, two very, very tough days bookended. And for me, the time trial looks very interesting because I would think that would definitely involve a bike change. I think um, that climb, hmm. the gradients uh, up to the finish line are too steep to and long enough to justify a bike change. Um, so... That's always that always causes a lot of stress for mechanics and riders alike, um, but it's entertaining, and uh, it's that's not an easy that's not an easy time trial. And someone with good legs or someone uh, with bad legs are going to get caught out or make big advantages so so close to the finish. Well, Rob and I were talking about this the other day, Matt, and they're obvious parallels there with the Planche des Belfis stage in the Tour de France in 2020 similar sort of configuration a flat start and then a tough climb and you know you mentioned the bike change but also that day and I think with hindsight I think Primoz Roglic has admitted it the the warm-up or lack of warm-up or the fact that he he did do a warm-up and maybe went too hard and you know all these things to kind of conjure with and maybe you know even logistically it might be difficult if someone was minded to do a recon probably won't in the morning it's probably too difficult isn't it but you know even getting back to the start these things have to be considered I suppose they do they do um and yeah looking at this looking at this route in general so I wouldn't be surprised to see Primoz on the start line of the Giro next year I think it's a course that suits him and I think now with uh, Indigard as the clear leader there at Jumbo Visma, I would think um, in his final years there, he would be looking to try to win a Grand Tour. And I think the Giro 2023 presents a very favour route that favours him a lot. And then that, that time trial, well, the other two time trials favour him, but uh, that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. But, you know, guys, you, you saw in that, you saw in that place to Belfit TT, he was, you know, lights were out. Yeah, he rode a very good time trial, I think fourth or fifth on the stage. But, you know, it's one of those ones there. It's, it's the fatigue. That's, that's harder than a, a hilltop finish uh, racing against someone else because you're on your own. And uh, it's, a, it's a very tough way to finish a Grand Tour. Matt, I was going to, at the start of this part, ask you about your first Giro d'Italia because we did mention Lago La Cena. I completely forgot to do it. Um, but since we're, well, we're at... At the end of the 2023 Giro d'Italia in our presentation, we're heading towards Rome and there's a link with your first Giro d'Italia because in 1998 you were riding for a team Amore Vita, who was effectively a team sponsored by the Vatican. Um, and Mr. Berlusconi. Were, and, and Mr. Berlusconi. What a combination. They had a, uh, secondary sponsor. <laughs> Ford, 
for Tarkore, which which eventually what became Forza Italia. An anti-abortion Forza Italia with the Vatican blessed by the honest... Uh, yeah. Our team photo uh, was... We were on... I have it as a, a proud place in my parents' house. I grew up with 12 years of Catholic schooling. And uh, there's a photo of me with the Pope. As soon as you walk into my mum and dad's house, there's a picture of me with the Pope, Pope John Paul II. And uh, in our AC Milan stripes, red and black, because that was a team that also Berlusconi owned. So the the strip was red and black because of him with big Force Italia across and then 25 other minor sponsors. Um, We were a walking billboard. And uh, and also that Giro in, uh, yeah, that was started in Nice. Prologue in, Prologue in Nice, and uh, that was the last. That was the last Grand Tour that did not have a rest day. Wow! Not, not a, a single, single rest, rest day. day. Then the the because it just didn't oh. work for the organisers at the time. They just thought we'll just keep the ball rolling. <laughs> um, and the UCI then yeah. made it mandatory after that. Firstly, that mandatory to have a, a rest day, which was pretty common. But then within a couple of years, that was the introduction after that of, I can't exactly remember when, when two rest days were introduced and have, stu- and have stuck ever since. So, Matt, just take us back, rewind a little bit. How did that happen? How did you come to be riding for a team? You weren't the first non-Italian to ride for that team. I'm wondering if you think it was a kind of institution, a sort of motley institution that had been around for a long time, run by the Fanini family in Tuscany. But how did that occur? Yeah, so I, I was riding for ZVVZ, uh, giant the year before, which was a combination of our. So in 1996, that was when amateur and professional cycling finished. So 1997, there was elite cycling, and then under and under 23. Well, 96 was elite cycling, and under 23. So the 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 possibility for teams to enter different races changed then, and so our national team turned into a semi-professional team in 1997. 96 and 97, and then at the end of that, that year, I was going the team was going to merge with an American team, Saturn, which was the biggest team in the States for 1998, and the deal fell over very, very late. Very, very late. I'm talking November, December. I remember being back in Australia getting prepared for the next season, and so I was left without a team going, running, going into 1998. Now, Shane Bannon, who was the high-performance director at Cycling Australia at the time, had ridden for Fanini as an amateur, uh, and he had connections with the with him, and he managed to get myself and Peter Rogers uh, into the team, and that was funded. Our, our salary was funded by uh, the Australian Institute of Sport because that was you know we still had scholarships at the time, so we went in there. That was our connection getting into Italy. I never had I never raced a day in Italy as an amateur. I did all my racing Belgium, Holland, Germany, uh, France. So my first ever race as a professional. Uh, was in Italy. Uh, I mean, it was as a professional, so it was it was a interesting team, uh, to say the least. And uh, the, the the two previous years they had won stages uh, with Danish riders, Nicolo by Bila- and oh sorry, one Dane and Magnus uh, Glenn Magnuson, Glenn Magnuson Glenn Mag- in the yeah. ninety in the ninety eight era. We we won another stage with Glenn as well. So uh, that was fond memories of that year. But I did. It was a tough one, and I remember I got eliminated uh, on the Thursday or the Friday with a group of sixty odd riders, uh, including the the um, including the points uh, winner. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Help me out here. Rode for quick, rode for quick step. Rode it was with ASICs at the time. 
Tuscan rider who now uh, coaches. He no no, Shin- no, Shin- no Shin- was was uh, Michele Bartoli. So he, oh, so right. we were in wow. a group. We were yeah. in a group of sixty riders. It was a, it was a stage. I can't remember the Pantani. What he'd had the pink jersey earlier in the race. He he had the pink jersey earlier in the race. Yeah. Also, his teammate took it on the stage up to. Adriano took it on the stage up to San Marino. San Marino. San Marino. And that was ASICS. Yeah. yeah, so we were in a group of 60 riders and we missed the time cut by 1 minute 10 or 1 minute 15. And because the, the commissaire at that race had enforced time cuts earlier in the race, really cutthroat, like, you know, I remember one stage a guy had crashed and missed the time cut and they went boom, home. So we had to follow suit. So 60 of us got missed the time cut. 50 to 60, oh, yeah, and including five of my teammates. So I think they started. That was that was when we had teams of nine. Um, so I think they limped to the finish in the last forty-eight hours with a group of three. But um, yeah, it was it was a tough old Giro, that's for sure. And my first experience at doing races over a week. That team anti-abortion, anti-smoking, anti-doping um, in two thousand and one. I think after the nine um, eleven, they rode for the rest of the season with uh, uh, some kind of stars and stripes. Um, Jersey to commemorate the victims of the 9-11 terrorist attacks and very unusual team um, we mentioned Matt the, the race is going to Rome on the final day a lot of teeth gnashing a lot of us are pretty unimpressed with that unhappy for various reasons some of them selfish some of them um, with an eye certainly towards well the environmental implications and what do you think as a team manager particularly you know you're you're going to be in the thick of the logistical planning to get everyone mechanics vehicles those or take them on that 740 kilometer journey from up in the far north east to rome uh it's tricky it's, it's nothing that the tour de france doesn't do a lot of the time but um uh, that is true, but yeah. yeah we'll look we'll probably end up sending going there with a skeleton a skeleton staff a skeleton crew and some yeah, our service course is in the Varese area so a lot of our trucks and vehicles will just go home directly from the Saturday stage and we'll probably end up with uh, a, a couple of vehicles and and a race car and then every, and it, I mean we may even take a different crew they drive down from Varese down to, to Rome and everyone goes home except for the directors and a couple of key staff because uh, it's, a, it's a big transfer oh, I'm sure the stage will be will start late on the Sunday afternoon in Rome but uh, yeah, we've the last time we finished in Rome, I think, was in um, when in eighteen, and that was a pretty average, pretty average circuit. So, which they ended up having, which they, Aver- so average that it didn't happen in the end. <laughs> well, they ended up they ended up uh, calling the time. It was so rough that they, they the time stopped, yeah. and uh, about twenty five people raced. I think the last the last little bit, and even. I remember taking it was 2009 Giro uh, when I had Bradley Wiggins in the team with Garmin, and he got robbed the time trial win on the last stage because he ended up um, he ended up the last four or five kilometers he had to do in torrential rain and in the, in the yeah. city of Rome and there was cobbles and we came around the corner and then Menchov crashed. Menchov crashed. So we came around the corner and there was a, lot, a rider in a car sprayed across the middle of the road. He had to go around that and I think uh, actually. My my local from Oliva, Ignatas Kozinovalovas, won the stage. 
who lives five or six hundred metres up the road from me here in Oliva. Uh, he uh, he won the stage from Savello, and Brad just missed out by yeah, 10 to 15 seconds, I think. He lost the time trial by it. But uh, that were the two times that certainly stuck in my memory, finishing off in Rome. But uh, no, it'll be it'll be a tough old end to uh, what is always a beautiful race. Selfish point of view. They're two of the best office views I think I've ever had commentating on site, the finish line. The Coliseum in 2009, and then looking across... And all the beautiful sort of cypress trees and the old ruins of ancient Rome in, in 2018. But as Daniel was saying then, you just want to go home, don't you? <laughs> that night before. A lot of people, you don't want to be in a car for six, seven a hours. A lot of people would have been a lot happier with a finish in Trieste, maybe. <laughs> to get yes. on nine o'clock flights. But uh, so be it. It, is, it will be. Rome is a beautiful city. And uh, yeah, fitting into what is always a spectacular race. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, how many years has it been now? It's going to be my fifth one on the bounce, fifth year on the bounce. Um, you know, I put a, I put a lot into this race. I put a lot of uh, been a lot of sacrifices, a lot of hard work. Um, I've had a lot of rewards too from the race, and um, but I just think it, I think it's time to move on, um, regardless of how it goes, and just uh, try something new um, or not new, just something. You know, you go to the tour or something, but it's not not just about the Grand Tours for me. I think. Like I miss doing tour of the Basque Country and these races that I that I can't do because I'm preparing for the Giro. Like they're some of my sort of favourite races that I really enjoy. Um, and for the last five years, I've I've I've, I've missed these sort of races. Um, so it's just a bit of that, bit of that really. I mean, you never know. You never know what happens uh, in the future. And I, mean, I could be saying all this all this jazz, and then next year I'm I'm back again. Um, but that's just my my general feeling at, at the moment. Well, chaps, we heard there from Matt, your star rider, one of your star riders, Simon Yates, talking to me before the start of the 2022 Giro d'Italia, saying that this, well, the 2022 race would probably be his last for a while, certainly as the main focus of his season. As we know, he, well, he wanted to do well in that race, maybe finish on the podium, perhaps even win it, and didn't go the way he wanted, and he had to pull out through injury. Um, why is he, should we take that, what Simon said, before the 2022 race at face value, given what we've learned over the last few days about how the 2023 Giro is going to look? I think the, the, the most important thing that Simon said hasn't changed. I think he's looking for something different. I think five years, five, five, uh, five years in a row, uh, it's, it's, it's a big focus. And for him also, he, he's, a, he's a racer. He enjoys racing, and, and when you do focus on the Giro, like he stated in that little uh, clip there, that does take him out of a lot of the races that he loves to loves to do. And uh, you know, I, no- I noticed Matt just looking a couple of weeks ago. I was looking at his results, and he's hardly ridden any monuments in the last five years. He's ridden uh, two or three. I mean, I know he was talking there about one week stage races primarily, but he's he hasn't done a lot of kind of Lombardies, Lieges. Yeah, and the strange thing is, is they they're not. For him, they don't personally motivate him that much, which mm. which everyone has their area, their focus, and everyone has their, their races that they dream of winning. And for him, you know, a Liège, Liège and Lombardy are two races where he could definitely has the ability to win those races. But they're not they're not races high up on his priority list. He he's a, he enjoys racing to win, uh, and stage races are his thing. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him back at doing some of the races that he did speak about in that in that clip. So what happens now? You wait until, well, you certainly got to wait until the tour route is released. Um, 
then do you wait even until the Vuelta route is unveiled before you really sort of open the spreadsheets and start planning certainly his season or will it be will that be enough information after next week to start thinking about what, what major tour might be his main focus no I think well the spreadsheets have been open a long time uh, they were opened well, I usually try to do them before the Tour de France just because when you're going on when you're hiring or rehiring riders you try to put that puzzle together uh, you know roughly what the Giro is going to look like the Tour is going to look like all the other races so you look at where, you, where your weaknesses are where you, where you need to improve and I think you know the Tour it might have an effect on the last one or two riders who we end up taking about the versatile riders or where you know if there's seven sprint stages or four or whatever that may be where those last spots but at the end of the day your key riders you know once you made once you made your mind up or discussed with those riders and your stakeholders where you're going to go I think the course doesn't change too much and as far as the welter you know usually it's a race there that will have a certain amount of guys targeting, but then we'll, we'll leave that there as the wild card there, that if something goes wrong with someone from the Giro or the Tour, that they've always got the, the welter up their sleeve. And the other thing that changes next season as well is we're going back to old school there with the position of the World Championships prior to the welter, how it used to be, um, which changes some things for some riders, but the guys who are targeting the Worlds, their race program will look a little bit different. They'll probably try to have to hang on to form post Tour de France instead of having that dip and coming back up again. So yeah, there's there's a lot of things to consider. But um, yeah, next week will be int- really interesting because obviously for every team, uh, the Tour de France is the is the big one that they that they want to get right in whatever right it means for that team, whether it's GC, a stage win, or, uh, or something else. I mean, chaps, there's a, the broader question of who is going to go to the Giro d'Italia, and I don't know about you, Rob, but watching the presentation the other day, it struck me that more than ever, RCS are kind of leaning into the Giro, perhaps because of the absence of big Italian hosts, big Italian stars, they're really leaning into sort of using the Giro as a showcase for Italy, and, you know, the moving, well, we heard that they they were going to finish the race in Trieste, and then at the last minute, um, they, they made an agreement with Rome. That was all, that was also to do with showing off Italy, selling Italy, um, and, you know, there is a lot of, sort of teeth gnashing in Italian cycling about the Giro, whether it's going to be able to attract the big names. There's been talk of these 70 kilometers of time trialing is that I moved to try and court Remco Vainapol. I'll just read you something that Italian journalist Cristiano Gatti wrote earlier this week when the route was announced. And the most prestigious of routes loses its aura if we don't have a worthy cast of champions, if the orchestra is not worthy of the music. At the moment, regarding this as a question mark as high as the Trecimi di Lavaredo. We certainly won't have Pogaccio on Vingegaard, i.e. the upper crust of Grand Tour riders, but ladies and gentlemen, but the ladies and gentlemen behind the Giro are going to have to come up with someone even if it means frog-marching them to Italy. I mean, he also pointed out that in 2024, we think that the Giro is going to start in Florence, and there are going to be three stages in Italy. We think there's a good chance of that. And uh, Cristiano Gatti was pointing out that the, the comparison might not be very flattering if the tour does go to Italy in 2024. Um, but yeah, that, that is a, a question that's hanging over the Giro. How is it going to attract names that are going to get pulses racing well they're trying aren't they they're trying their best in terms of the route i mean it was obvious that it's been laid on to try and bring Evenepoel here even to try and get Pogaccia here although i'm pretty sure that was unrealistic you know they put the time trial right on the slovenian border they've given him a lot of climbing they've given him a lot of time trial kilometers i'm not sure there's anything more they can do really in terms of trying to attract um, people with money. well there is that isn't there but i wasn't going to mention that <laughs> 
It's a great unsaid, isn't it? I don't know whether Matt White can elaborate on this, but I don't know why. I don't know why we feel so queasy about mentioning it. I mean, I think it's a pretty much an open secret that that there are cash incentives that are offered to certain riders to do certain races, particularly the Giro. Matt, yeah. you're at liberty to say as much or as little as you want. Yeah, no, no. I, I think whatever the cash incentives are, I think team objectives and exposure and priorities will overrule, overrule that. And I think uh, the teams the teams and the sponsors and the, and the partners and stakeholders are the ones who have a big influence there on where riders end up. And, you know, no one has gone back-to-back in the modern era of cycling, winning the Giro and Tour, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. How oh, actually, actually, the one reason to get, where you could get Pochacar back in would make a softer Giro. Maybe that, maybe that would entice... You know, have go old, really old school. Remember the year that uh, uh, Pataki won nine stages, or eight stages, <laughs> and, and I think Robbie McEwen still won two. So, you know, have t- yeah, that would be probably one way you could get some of the big stars to back up if it was a, actually if it was a softer Giro. And uh, because the thing that scares people from the Giro is just the amount of stress, and then having to back up four weeks later. And do it all over again uh, hasn't been repeated. Look, I think Chris Froome came close with two, a win in a podium in 2018, um, but uh, in the last 25 years since Pantani in '98, there has been no one been able to back up uh, in, in the two. I mean, it's a difficult balancing act as well for RCS Sport because they've obviously tried to globalise the event and globalise its appeal over the last 10, 15 years. But which they've done. Yeah. Which they've done a very good job they too. It culminates yeah. next year. I mean, I'll be commentating the race for, for Discovery, Eurosport, GCM, whichever platform you want on. And next year, I think we've got the biggest um, geographical area of rights that we've ever had. We're, we're even live in New Zealand, which is a territory that's evaded a lot of you know, we've always tried to buy the rights there as a, as a company. I say we, I'm freelancer working for, for that company. Um, so, yeah, that you know, they're, they're selling as much and as many hours. And I think next year as well, it's going to be every single pedal stroke as well, sort of start to finish. So, well. you know, the Giro is on a par with the Tour in that sense, and it's going to get a lot of progress. And, and you can see, you talked about the presentation, Daniel, you know, how they were talking about selling Italy, showing off Italy. You know, it's something that they always do. And you've talked at length on Giro podcasts about this, about the Italians wanting to be loved, wanting their country to be loved, wanting to show it off and wanting to be recognised as the più bella al mondo and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and this is just the sort of culmination of it. But again, it's difficult to see where else they can go in terms of trying to sell it, really, than doing what they're doing. I, I'm sort of torn by this as, as a fan because I love the Giro as the purest Grand Tour. I, in that sense, I don't want it to change. I want it to be Italian. I don't want it to be globalised. But obviously, to make money and continue to exist, they have to. They have to move with the times. Yeah, I mean, and everything has moved with the times. You know, Matt, we were talking earlier about your first year in 1998. If you go back and look at the start list for that race, probably 16 of the 20 teams were Italian. And you know, I was I was looking at poor old, you know, poor Jai Hindley and Arno Demar, and I can't remember who else they got onto the stage the other day. Who were, you know, ostensibly they were the stars of the 2022 race, but they don't speak Italian. And you know, probably in the 90s, the Ivan Gotti's, the Paolo Savoldelli's were no more personalities than Jai Hindley's now. However, because they were speaking a common language with the press, and because. You know, it was easy to build those little rivalries. Um, you know, so-and-so said something which could be construed in a certain way. The next day on in La Gazzetta, there were two stages saying that um, Gotti had attacked Savoldelli, uh, he'd insulted him, and so on and so forth. And 
because it was parochial, it was easy to create those storylines, which are very difficult to create now and to reproduce. Definitely, definitely. But I, I think where the Giro and the Welter were pre-World Tour, they were turning into very much, you know, the Welter and the, that was, that was vastly dominated by local teams. And but the the coverage and the awareness of those races in the global market was a, a much smaller was much smaller. So I, th- I think the World Tour has go- has globalized our sport very successfully, and those two races have probably benefited the most. That you know, no one knew anything about the world outside of hardcore cycling fans. No, not too many people would have heard about the Giro or the Vuelta. Uh, and and I think the, over the last fifteen years, the the awareness of those two races. Has has been on the up and up, and I think the Giro has done a very good job of uh, of promoting their race. And they're always, like I said, they're always going to struggle to get the big stars, you know, four weeks out from the Tour de France. But they've done a great job, and I think they can continue to with that with the route they put in front of us for next year. Matt, while we've got you here, just before we finish, you we're going to look forward a little bit to 2023 generally. I mean, you mentioned a few minutes ago just that process of planning, the recruitment, the kind of puzzle, all the puzzle pieces have to be fitted together. When you and like of Brent Copeland and um, your other direct sportifs sort of started thinking about 2023 a couple of months ago, what were the areas that you thought needed addressing? I mean, I'm talking here about the men's team mainly. I don't know how involved you are in recruitment with the women's team. I mean, the, just to recap, I mean, the team had a very successful season. I think it was probably overshadowed by a lot of that talk about relegation or not relegation. But you actually, you know, you had 22 wins in total and that was that was 13 more than the previous year, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. no, we, 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 were, we were off the bounce off our worst year ever. But um, you know, twenty-two wins, and I think eight or nine World Tour wins. Not too many. Not too many teams won a stage in all three Grand Tours. Yet we're still fighting for relegation. Just shows how how ridiculous the point system is. But no, it was. What were we looking for? Well, we were, first one was to lock in our in our key riders. So you know, as an organisation going forward, we have Simon Yates for two more years. We have Michael Matthews for three more years. We have Dylan Grunewagen for another two. So we've we've got our winners locked in, and. What we could do with the with the backing of our sponsors. Now we know we have at least a three year sponsorship deal in front of us, so it was a good time for us to go a bit younger, um, refresh the team a little bit, and look for look for some young talent. And and we have we had always done our best when we have time to develop that talent as well. So yeah, it's it's a it's a professional sport. It's a it's a cutthroat it's a cutthroat industry, and you have to keep winning. But when you have a little bit of time, when you know, the business model of cycling, when we are 100% reliant on our sponsors, uh, you have to keep winning all the time in, in the biggest paces and the biggest races. And now we have time to develop those young guys over the next three years and look for where our next wave of stars and champions are coming from. And just looking at some of the names that are coming in, Eddie Dunbar, Stenex, Stebart, Zana, the Italian national champion, Chris Harper, who was um, very impressive towards the end of the season for Jumbo Visma. Um, Lucas Pustelberger, and then you've got a couple of a few neo pros. Wale Bearer, is it? Uh, yeah, well, Hagos is his first name. From yeah, so another another Ethiopian, uh, little little rough diamond. We've got on our hands there. Um, so we, we have got some young talent coming coming into the team. A couple of young Australians, European European champion uh, from Germany. Right, quick. Blake is Quick. Quick by name. Is he quick? Is he quick by nature? He is. He's our national road champion under twenty three and national criterion champion. 
And uh, no, we have got some. We've got five Neo Pros next year and uh, eight or nine new riders. So that's that's a big turnover for us. But uh, it was you know after what had happened over the last couple of years with the Manuela Foundation attempted buyout and and COVID and everything else, we we needed we needed a refreshing and twenty twenty three is a continuation of that uh, rejuvenation of the squad. How do you see Dunbar fitting in? What's he going to bring? Um, what he's well, what he was missing at Ineos was opportunity. Now, there's a guy who won two stage races this year, and as I think he's only done one Grand Tour in his, the four or five years that he actually did with Ineos. So he, he was preparing for the he'd won two races in the spring and still couldn't make the Giro roster. So we got him pretty. We we saw that you know, that's a good place for teams like us to look is look at those big teams with a lot of money and look at guys who aren't getting the opportunities that they want. And uh, someone like Eddie will walk walk into this team as a leader. Uh, and we, are, we haven't locked in our programs next year, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see uh, someone like Eddie Dunbar leading us at the Giro d'Italia next year, you know, whereas he couldn't even make the team at Ineos in 2022. So for, for us, he's going to give us another backup for Simon Yates. Uh, you know, when we've got Simon racing... For example, if it's Basque country for general classification, we've got someone else racing on another front. So that's something we have lacked since Adam Yates left the team where we were battling on two fronts very successfully. So I think Eddie's going to be a really good value add for us on the GC front and uh, he's excited for to get those opportunities, which he will definitely get with us. And just finally, Matt, I did promise you the opportunity to vent a little bit about, about an issue in professional cycling. We were talking about themes that might become... Um, hot topics in the coming year you know in the last couple of years we've talked about the emergence of all these very young riders and how they've excelled and I asked you whether there was something you wanted to talk about and Rob Hatch you can defend you can defend the case of television discussion in this short discussion (laughs) Um, Matt Matt you were maligning to me yesterday the role that television motorbikes have been having on races in the last few months and potentially a few years just expand on yes. that. Yes. Okay. So I can say the, the, the easiest and the fairest way for me to say it is now we're not at a bike race. So I'm not pointing fingers at at, a, at any certain result. But and, and, and like we discussed the other day, if you go back and look, especially in Italy, if you look at races, especially Milan San Remo, on the Poggio, for example, motorbikes have always been part of our sport. Now, anyone who goes to the biggest races uh, would, or, or, or a fan on the side of the road, it's probably a little bit gobsmacked with the amount of motorbikes uh, around. Some are necessary and some are certainly not. I don't know why uh, 20 different organisations needed the same photographer uh, taking a photo in front of a breakaway. Um, but they you know, scientifically, it is proven that draft does exist. And the UCI, in their wisdom, made a changing to the rule uh, a week ago for time trials. That you know, the, the, rule, the rule for time trials is that a team car couldn't sit closer than 10 metres to the back of a bike rider. And now they've made it 15 metres. Now, that's that's great. But uh, we also know that there is various vehicles in front of the rider and various vehicles behind the rider, like television motorbikes, who sit very close uh, and and also that, who do have a direct impact on the race. Now, back in the day, a lot, a lot of the races weren't, weren't covered live start to finish so yeah there was there was motorbikes in the bike race they did they did affect the race but it was in certain times now the majority of our races are live now and like like rob was saying yeah the giro and the tour and a lot of the world it's it's live start to finish so there are a lot of vehicles who are in front of the race i just think 
and this does affect positively, positively and negatively the break and the bunch. But it, it is having a, it does have a massive effect on on drafting. You know, when you've got a television motorbike or a photographer, a camera, a photographer on the back of a motorbike sitting under ten meters in front of a group, that is, that's 55, 60 kilometers an hour. That is a big drafting effect. Or a television motorbike directly filming a time trailer three meters behind them, which does happen. You're getting some nice close-up shots. Or a motorbike coming into the last kilometer and a bunch sprint with a motorbike filming a head-on shot. Now that's a, that's a, for me that's a safety issue. So there's lots of things to discuss there, but I think the UCI who are uh, who should be uh, putting enforce the rules to make our our races safe and and fair, there could be some simple rules to put in place to make it a level playing field. Rob, what do you got to say for yourself? <laughs> um, I, to be honest, I don't think there's anything I disagree with. That's that's the issue. Um, obviously, we want. I've I've been in a in a in a nasty position of having to commentate on on those incidences where we've sadly seen people lose their lives. We've seen people have awful injuries, and you know it's I tell you, it's not a nice place to try and find the words to to say something and, and accompany those images. It's pretty horrible. So that's the last thing we want. Obviously, safety has to be has to be always the first thing in terms of bringing the images to you. Yeah, I mean we've got technology surely to. To have better cameras with better zooms, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not a camera operator, but I would imagine that we, you know, do we always have to be that close? I'm not sure. I think part of the problem is maybe that there is so much coverage now, and people are obviously organisers trying to save money and things like that. Um, you don't always get the best production team that follows, let's say, the Tour de France working on a third division race in Italy on a Wednesday afternoon. And it's not those camera operator faults, it's not those directors' faults, but maybe we should be thinking about getting a team of, you know, a couple of crack teams of top directors, top camera operators who know where they are, who also maybe know the riders as well. That could help. I'm not sure. Know the directors, know the riders. I mean, I saw an incident I was watching, I was commentating on Wednesday afternoon. I think it was the Giro del Veneto, either that or the Veneto Classic on Sunday. And, and Matteo Trentin was quite rightly getting pretty angry with one of the motorbikes because he was zooming down this descent. And again, I'm sure the motorbike pilot was doing his very best, but he was just too close. He was he was that close that he was in the way. And it wasn't even one of those situations where, where you're talking about people you know, helping the brake or helping the peloton and things like that, creating a draft. It was simply a safety issue but then again let's not kid ourselves this is a problem that's been around since Adam were a lad um, talk to our mate Sean Kelly and he'll tell you about certain helicopters being in certain place that prevented him winning certain big races because a certain nationality <laughs> had to win that race <coughs> Giro di Lombardia um, you know all sorts of things going on but I yeah I can't argue with your point that that something needs to be done about that and and it is too close even you know even us we want to see nice close pictures because you know a lot of the time we're not at the races nowadays with with all this you know certainly after covid and things like that we're, we're watching on the same sort of size television screen as you are you know when i'm working in the home studio I'm, I'm looking at a screen that's about the size of maybe twice a little youtube video or something like that so we want to see you know who's there to try and give you the best information but not at the cost of uh of you know influence in the races or even compromising safety the directors will push their luck won't they rob i mean in the same way that team directors will push their luck in a sense they'll tell a rider maybe not i'm not pointing any fingers <laughs> at you matt you would never do such a thing but tell a rider you know just hold on to this bottle a little bit longer a little bit longer until you really get screamed at and tv rider um tv directors will tell a motopilot just stay in there just stay in there until they you know they 
they really get angry and you've got no other option but to follow That's what Matt was saying there as well. It comes down to the, the UCI, doesn't it? Like everything. They, they have to be the proper arbiters and they have to be, you know, you want a stronger referee, Jeff. <laughs> you want somebody, who'd, you know, you, you want somebody who, who sets the rules and they're applied, simple as. Yep. Yep. And and the rules apply for us as uh, teams, and I think that that the people involved in the race should also there should be certain rules that should be applied that they have to follow as well. Well, chaps, I think that concludes today's entertainment. Um, a very warm thank you for for your time, Matt. You've been extremely generous with your time and extremely insightful as always. And next week we're going to do a similar thing. We're going to be looking at the Tour de France presentation. So next week's podcast won't come out until after that happens. Things on Thursday. Um, I have a, another couple of cracking guests for that. But in the meantime. I'm going to say thanks to you, Matt White, and I'm going to wish you a restful and very enjoyable winter, which will be spent mostly in Spain, I believe. Yeah, up until Christmas. Up until Christmas, I'll be here and then uh, head back uh, back to Oz for Christmas to see, see my family and then stay there for the month of January where we're getting back our World Tour races, back uh, Tour Down Under and Kid Evans Classic will be back on as, a world, as World Tour events in 2023. Looking forward to it. You'll be going back to, is it Court... Cornula, Cornula, um, where you we established yesterday you're the second most famous sportsman after Steve Wars got a beach site. Cronulla. Got a beach site Cronulla. 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 Um, Cronulla. Oh, that's where mum mum and dad live, Cronulla. but I'll be back in uh, back in Sydney enjoying uh, enjoying myself over Christmas New Year break. Nice. And talking of nerdly medium paces, Rob Hatch, um, you'll be staying in Mallorca for the foreseeable future. Yes, uh, going on holiday next week, looking forward to that. First sort of two weeks, putting everything down for quite a few years, actually. So uh, I'm going back to my spiritual home in the Canary Islands for a couple of weeks. Can't wait. Oh, nice. Well, happy holidays to you. That is all. Thank you, Matt. Cheers, Jens. And thank you, Rob. Cheers. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.